Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. and get started. All right, Father, thank you for this night and thank you for this time we can spend in your word. Open our hearts, Father, to what you would teach us. Thank you for this opportunity to share over your word and thank you for your Holy Spirit who guides us into all truth. In Christ's name, amen. amen. All right, well, we're in 2 Corinthians and uh, if you really looked at um, the books that Paul wrote, what number of book was this? Those of you who read the year. Four. Yeah, it's really second. It's really fourth Corinthians. Um, we know that he wrote a early epistle to the Corinthians that he alludes to in First Corinthians, right? And so First Corinthians then would be the second letter he wrote. All right. And then he wrote a severe letter that he talks about in Second Corinthians. And then we have Second Corinthians, which is really the fourth one he wrote to them. Um, so those who want to say Corinth is their model church, Paul had to write four letters to them to straighten them out at least. And uh, even then he didn't quite succeed, I don't think, in doing that. Um, but it's, there's, we know of at least four letters that was written to, that Paul wrote to Corinth. Where was it written from? Anybody know? Ephesus. And when was Paul in Ephesus when he wrote this? What missionary journey? Third. Third missionary journey. Um, how long did he stay in Ephesus at that time? About three years at that time. And uh, during that time, probably towards the end, is when he wrote Second Corinthians back. Most scholars date it somewhere around A.D. 55, maybe 56. Somewhere around in there um, is when he wrote this back. Um, Corinth, Second Corinthians is one of the most personal of all of Paul's letters. Um it's personal in the sense that he really bears his heart in this letter. Um, he, he almost, it, it's one of those letters that he really didn't want to write, but he wrote anyways. It's, it's a reluctant letter if you want to think about it. And it's reluctant because he has to defend his apostleship in it. What other New Testament book did he really have to do that in? He didn't write Acts. <laughs> what other book did he have to really defend his apostleship in a little bit? No? 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 Close, close, you are. Hot, hot. Galatians. Galatians. He had to, yeah, Galatians, he had to do it. All right. Yeah, Exodus. All right. Hezekiah. <laughs> All right. Um, it's, it was Galatians. And. He did it reluctantly because evidently what had happened is that um, Paul ministered, of course, a long time in Corinth, 18 months at least. Um, you have a thriving ministry there. And then when he leaves, you've got sort of a vacuum and you've got these teachers, other so-called apostles that come trotting in. And uh, they want to have their influence in the church. So how, are they do, how do they do that? How, do, how are they going to gain influence in this church? Yeah, well, how do they do that? If you're going to come in and take over the church, how do you do that? 
You got to discredit the previous guy, right? You got to discredit him somehow. And it's even helpful when he's not there to defend himself, right? Um, you got to somehow discredit the previous guy. You got to make him look like something he is not. That way you can get your, you, you can pass yourself off as, you know, the one that's sort of rode in on a white horse to sort of fix things up that the previous guy had messed up. Um, and, and that's what these false teachers were doing. They were coming in and trying to discredit Paul. And Paul has to write this really defense of his apostleship, not so much that it was a personal affront to him, but because by discrediting Paul, they were discrediting his message. By discrediting his message, they were discrediting who? Christ. And that's what got him all riled up, is that it, it had nothing to do with himself. Paul Paul was a pretty, um, I don't know, humble guy. He, it didn't matter to him whether people said anything bad about him. Remember he said in Philippians, I don't care whether they preach Christ of, of contention or not. I don't care whether they you know, try to hurt me in prison. As long as Christ is preached, that's all I care about. So it, had no, it was not a personal thing to Paul. But rather, Paul knew that by discrediting him, they could discredit the truth that he proclaimed and substitute the truth with their own brand of truth. All right. And for the most part, what was the brand of error that was being peddled? Well, two things. One, Gnosticism was coming in. Um, now, the full-blown Gnosticism wasn't here yet, but it was certainly, certainly there. And... And, and really, when you look at New Testament Gnosticism, you know, this, this is the thing we, we have to understand um, as Christians. Whenever you take the Word of God and you take some human philosophy, I don't care what it is, and you try to merge the two, what happens? The Bible loses every single time. Every time. When you take the Bible and you try to integrate it with Freudian psychology, which one wins? Freudian psychology. The Bible becomes just a, a proof text for their own theories or whatever. When you take the Bible and you merge it with um, pragmatism, what's pragmatism? What works, works. You know, let's go with what works. When you take the Bible and you merge it with pragmatism, which one loses? The Bible all the time. And all of a sudden now the means become the issue and not truth. That's, that's what you have in the, you know, the, the, the stuff you see up, somewhat happened up at Willow Creek and the emerging church where truth is not proclaimed. You know, the idea is if it works, we'll go with it, whether it's in the Bible or not. We're going to do what works. We're going to take the pragmatic approach and, and make it work. And truth always loses. Whenever you take the Bible, whenever you take truth, and you try to wet it with a system, a human system, whether it's philosophy or psychology or whatever it is, or, or other religions, you wind up destroying the Word of God every single time. All right? It always loses. Because you're going to try and interpret the Bible in light of your philosophy or your religion or your cult or whatever it is, and never the other way around. All right. As Christians and as students of the word, we need to get to the point where the Bible is the authority. Everything else lies underneath that. Everything else. You know, your experiences, your your philosophies, your ideas, your notions, your 
whatever it is, lines up underneath the Word of God. It, it becomes the authority. Okay? Um, and that's really what, you know, where we have to land as, as Christians. And, and what was happening in Paul's day and what's happening today is you had people come in or they're trying to wed their philosophy, whether it's a, it's a dualism or whether it's some Gnostic belief, some pantheistic belief, um, or whether it's Judaism and are trying to amalgamate the two. And whenever they do that, the word of God always loses. All right. Um, for example, when they try to merge the scripture and philosophical dualism, which says matter is evil, spirit is good, you come up with docetic Gnosticism. Christ was not a physical body. He did not, he, he never did exist in a physical body. It just looked sort of like a physical body, but he was really sort of like this ghost type creature because there's no way the divine would ever take upon itself evil matter. So Christ was not man at all. Now, if Christ is not man, does that affect the gospel? Well, yeah, it destroys it, doesn't it? Um, if Jesus Christ was not fully man, he could not be a substitute, right? So that blows that. But what you try to, when you try to merge philosophical dualism with the scripture, you wind up with a Gnosticism. Um, when you take the mystical religions of, uh, you know, the pantheistic or polytheistic religions, and you merge it in there, you wind up with another brand called Serinthian Gnosticism. Christ was this nice guy walking around Palestine, and the Christ spirit came down on him and inhabited him for three years and let him do some wonderful things and wonderful teachings. And then prior to his crucifixion, the Christ spirit sort of flew away, and who died on the cross was nothing more than Jesus the Jew. Now, does that sort of blow your salvation. Well, yeah, it does, because who died on the cross? A man, right? That's not God, that's a man. All right? And, and what you see is, is every time the Bible loses, every time truth loses. Okay? I don't like the way you, the Bible never loses. Maybe it's... Philosophically, the Bible loses. That's what I mean by that. Whenever you take the scripture and you try to match it up with a system of error, okay, you wind up creating a truth that is not truth. All right? It's not that the Bible loses. The Bible can't lose. It's eternal, right? It's, you know, God's word's established forever in heaven. So, you know, my heaven and earth will pass away. My word will not pass away. But people, well-meaning people, always try to go, you know, they take their system. I always try to go to the Bible and find proof texts for that. Um, you know, I, I've been on it before in the class here um, for... Uh, Psychology does that. You know, you listen to a Christian psychologist, I can tell you right off the bat where they're coming from, and they use the scripture to proof text their own little psychological theory. All of them do. I don't care whether it's James Dobson or Larry Crabb or Minerth and Meyer or um, Dan Allender. I, you, you name them. They, 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 they may be well-meaning, but they, they take the scripture and they interpret it in light of their system. Sometimes they grab the translation if that's the point. Oh, yeah. They do translation shopping. You know, which translation will best spin the verse the way I want it to make it look well? Um, what about everybody's individual bias? And their bias comes into that. I mean, but as, as a rule, don't, don't people, everybody here has a bias. When they Absolutely. Do. And your, your, your challenge as a student of the Word of God 
is to you can't eliminate your bias. None of us can do that. We all have that. That we've got to live with it. But we can recognize it. We can recognize what our bias is and take that into consideration. And I think you can get to the point where where your bias plays less and less a factor in your interpretation of scripture. All right. What do you mean by that? Yeah. You know what I mean? As you as a teacher, you're going to see things as a teacher. Someone as a pastor, they're going to see things as a pastor. Someone as an evangelist or a missionary. Every scripture is we have to do the work of the Lord. It's, yeah. And what you need, and, and it takes a lot of discipline to to get rid of your. I know what you're saying. You know, every time a missionary comes in, you know, you get the feeling if you're not in what bongo bongo eating tarantulas and turtle soup, you're not serving the Lord. You're not a you're not you're not you're out of God's will if you're not in the middle of Africa trudging through the jungles to and they'll share the you know um, it has a different yeah slant to the way they want it. right you got to be aware of your biases you got to be aware of those things and as a student of the Word of God you've got to understand what your biases are and and do the best you can to remove them from your interpreta your interpretation of that. Um, you know, one good bias that we see that I was just listening to today, they are talking about, is the feminist bias. All right. Um, there are churches where they have the egalitarian approach, which says men and women, as far as roles, as far as capability, are totally equal. Now, if you approach the scripture that way, what do you do with a passage that says, um, I do not allow a woman to teach and usurp authority over a man? But to be in silence, well, you've got real problems with that. You've got to either say Paul is a male chauvinist pig and didn't know what he was talking about, which some have said. Or some have said, well, he was just talking about that one church. So if he's just talking to the church in Ephesus there, um, what about the rest of the stuff in Timothy? Does that just belong to them, too? You know, how, where do you draw the line there? You know, um, well, he was just talking about uh, false women who taught false doctrine. Well, what about all the men that are teaching false doctrine? He forgot to talk about them. I mean, what you have to do is you have to you have to radically alter the clear sense of scripture to make it fit your biased worldview. You you have to do that, or it doesn't fit. Or what does it say when it says that uh, you know wives obey your husbands? Now that'll really flip them out, right? What do you mean obey? He's an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, the word obey there means to line up under. It doesn't mean to obey like children. Children are to listen under. Hupo akuo, children are to listen to their parents. They are to obey them. This is a different word. It's it's a military term, which means to line up under. It's like, you know, a, a privates or, or whatever, lining up under a sergeant. It has nothing to do with capability. It has nothing to do with one's giftedness or anything like that. It just says in, a, in the organizational structure of the home, God has ordained the man as the leader. That's, that's how he's ordained. He's responsible. He's the one that's going to give an account to God for how the family turns out. And, and the wife is to line up under that authority. Not because she's subservient or because she's not gifted or dumb or anything like that, but because that's how God has ordained it. But as a student of the word, do you see some passages now differently than you did 20 years ago? Yep. And were you, 
Were you wrong with some passages 20 years ago? Yep. And you know what? 20 years from now, if I'm still around, um, I'll change on some other passages. Now, now the bulk, you know, the core set of beliefs I have are not going to change, right? But your understanding of certain scriptures and certain passages will change as, as you mature, as you grow, as you, you know, understand the word of God more and more and more. That's part of, that's part of spiritual growth. That's normal. Hopefully you do grow. You know, if, if you knew, if only theology knows the theology you knew when you got saved, you're in trouble, right? Hopefully you have grown over the years. You've, you, your, your understanding of scriptures become more comprehensive, more deep, more developed over time. All right. Yeah. And when you ask the Lord, help me to know, you know, where my biases are and, 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 cause we, we all, we came out of traditions, right? Yeah, folk theology. Some of us came out of, you know, we came out of, uh, you know, the, the Catholic background. You know, you got you got a Catholic slant, you know, and it, because that you grew up with that. And some of us are Lutheran. Some of us are, I guess, we call pagan. You know, um, so you just understand what those are. And and the, the struggle that's happening here in Corinth, of course, is that Paul has these people coming in, and they are trying to mix the truth of the Word of God with other philosophies. And when they do that, the, tr the truth of the Word of God is diluted. All right? It loses its meaning. Is it different than the Judaizers? Judaizers did the same thing, only they used Judaism. So, That's not the problem here. No. The Judaizers are not really the problem in Corinth. And why is that? Mainly it was a Gentile church, right? I mean, it's mostly Gentile. Um, what was the problem in Galatia? Well, that was the Judaizers, right? Because Paul goes in, he starts a church, the Judaizers come in right after him, and they say, well, Paul got you started, but we're going to get you going here, you know? And that's what Paul says, having begun in the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? You started out okay now, now why are you trying to bring human works into this and you know, getting circumcised and your dietary rules and everything else. Um, that's what he argues against there. All right. But just be aware of that. Be aware of how our biases and worldviews tend to to slant scriptures a little bit. And it's hard as a student to try and get rid of your biases. You got to really work at that. You know, and get rid of your folk theology a little bit and get get rid of those preconceptions that you have when you come to the word of God. And let it speak for itself. Because it is a coherent whole when it when it's understood in its proper context. So what Paul has to do here in for in Second Corinthians is he has to deal with this whole problem of his credibility. Because if his credibility is shot, his message is shot. If that's shot, then what happens to the truth that he's taught them? Well, that goes by the wayside, and now somebody can slide in with a different truth. And that's what Paul has to deal with here. It's not a personal vendetta that he has, where he's upset about some personal ego bruising. Rather, he's concerned about the truth of the Word of God. That's what he's worried about. Okay? So Paul starts out uh, 
chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So who was with Paul when he wrote this? Well, Timothy was. And remember, Timothy's one, his second-hand man, right? His true son in the faith. And Paul has such regard for Timothy that Paul basically says, if Timothy comes, that's as good as me being there. All right? To the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in Achaia. What's Achaia? It's the whole province of which Corinth is the capital city. All right? So not only is he talking to the people in Corinth, but he's talking to the other Christians in the province of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any way trouble, in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Five comforts there. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we're comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the suffering, so also will you be partaker of the consolation. Um, this right here would destroy the happy clappy movement of the charismatic system right there. Because what do they say? We have trouble. What do they say? What's, what's, what is it? What, what comes through? Lack of faith. Lack of faith. I mean, I mean, look, look, look at what you see on, on, on TV. You know, you, you see some of these guys. Joel Osteen, you, the best is what ahead of you, or whatever it is. What's his book? The best is yet to come, or your best is yet to come. Your best life now? I can't remember. Okay. And what it is, it's a very positive thing like, you know, if you are suffering, you're out of God's will. I mean, is that, is that a true statement? Is that, is that what comes through on a lot of the TV? Yeah, if you're suffering, if you're having trials, if, if, if you're having financial difficulties, your problem is you, have, you don't have faith. Because as a Christian, you shouldn't have those troubles. You're a child of the king. Your you're, 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 you're father is the king of the world. He's, he's the king of eternity. You know, if you're having tribulations and trials and difficulties and all that, you must lack faith or you must be out of God's will, right? Book of Job, remember? Book of Job. Would it, you know, Job's there. He's, now, now, put yourself in Job's shoes. Did he know why he was having trouble? No, I mean, he, he, when it was all over, he wrote chapter 1 and 2, where Satan shows up. But while he's going through his trial, he didn't know. And so what did all of his friends say? Fess up. Okay, what'd you do, Job? Come on. What'd you do to get God upset with you? You, you sinned, Job. Come on, have it out with it. What did you do? What did you do? And, and what we, we as Christians, as, as Bible-believing Christians, we have a very bad theology of suffering in the modern church. And I'm talking about all of this. It's evidence, most evidence, in the, the Joel Osteens and the Ken Hagens and Copelands and, and uh, what's the other guy? Um, Morris Cirillo group that, and hopefully I'm not 
bad mouthing anybody you really like. I'm sorry, you know, I apologize ahead of time, but huh? All your friends. But you know, yeah. yeah. Morris, you know, Morris Cirillo's basic philosophy is is we have power over Satan. If we're going through some difficulties, we can command and demand that Satan leave us. We can, we have authority over the demons, and you know. I, th I think he was spouting T-shirts one time. Says, "Kick the devil in the behind," or I think he used a different word there. Um, but he had T-shirts you could get. And folks, we have a very bad theology of suffering. And if the Bible in the New Testament tells us anything, it says, "If you're not suffering for Christ, that is abnormal. It is normal for us to suffer." For Christ, why is that? Why is it normal for us as Christians to suffer? Why should we as Christians suffer? What are some reasons we should suffer? Well, we should suffer. What makes us think we're any different from Christ? Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well, let's think about it. What kind of world do we live in? We live in a fallen world, right? So one reason we suffer is, you know what? We live in a fallen world, which means there are diseases, there's death, there's accidents that happen. There are tornadoes that hit. There are thunderstorms. There are whatevers, right? I mean, we live in a fallen universe. What do you expect? This is not a perfect creation, right? And why should you expect to escape all of the diseases and trials and things of life? Just because you're a Christian. We live in a fallen world. Why else do we suffer? Sin, right? Now, sometimes that could be our own sin, right? Or it could be the sin of others. If someone commits a crime against you, that's a sin. You may not have done anything, but it's we live in a sinful, fallen world. Why should we as Christians be exempt from this? And from our own sin, right? Sometimes as Christians, we make really bad decisions. And we'll suffer for them. You know, why else do we suffer? Well, James says to endure. Endurance. He, says, he says to endure suffering because it does what? It ref we, we, we suffer because of God's refinement, right? God allows suffering to refine us. To make us more like him, right? He suffered. And he didn't deserve suffering, but when we suffer, we suffer with him to some extent. God's refinement. Um, I have about a dozen of these I came up with over the years. I'm not going to remember them all, okay? Um, another reason we suffer is because uh, the world hates us, right? Does the world love you? No. What is the world? What is the world? When I say the world, what is what is the world? It's the world system. It's the values of the world, right? It's what is the world value? It's interesting. Um, Gary and I drove up and down Hollywood. We went to Hollywood and Vine and then drove up and down. I think it's Hollywood there. It's a big, long street. And we're done. I made the comment. I said, I didn't see anything here I wanted. 
but it's probably a good thing. All right. Um, you go through there and you see strip club after strip club. You see sex shops all the way along there. You, you know, I don't know why anybody would even want to go there with their family. Um, you see a lot of seedy people there. Um, and yet, to many people, that's the, that's it. That's where it's at, right? And the very fact that you would not buy into that system makes you an oddball. And the world hates you for that. You know, and in fact, in John 15, Christ says, if the world hates you, don't be surprised about it because it hated me. What makes you think they're going to like you any better? So it, just, just as an aside, I got to put a plug in. If you have a ministry philosophy that says, I want the world to like me, what's wrong? They aren't going to like you. How will the world like you? If you become like them, right? And James says, if you're like the world, you're the enemy of God. You want to pick one. You want, to, you want God to like you, the world to like you. That's it. You can't, you can't be liked by both. And yet there are a lot of philosophies of ministry out there that say, we want to be relevant to the world. We want the world to like us. Because if they like us, they'll like Jesus. And Jesus says, you know what? Don't even go there. The world's going to hate you. Well, the pitch is Christianity will fix your life. Yeah. And when it doesn't, what happens? <laughs> you know, Christianity doesn't work. For the point is, we, we are not of the world. You're not of the world. You're not. You know, someone said the Christian in the world is like a boat in the water. It's really good if the boat's in the water. It's really bad if the water's in the boat. Okay? It's really good if you're in the world. It's really bad if the world's in you. All right? And our problem is we allow the world to become to come in us. And we leak and we ride low in the water and some of us sink probably. But the whole point is the world hates you. And because of that, we live in a fallen world. The, 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 the philosophy of the world is going to hate us. So get used to it. I think First John 2.15 sums it up pretty good. You know, anything from the world is not from the Father. No. And then goes on to name all the lust. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride of life. You know, you go to Hollywood and find somebody's got a star on their walk. So what? Big deal. What does that mean? You know, you got a star on the walk. You know, but to some people, you know, that's that's the ultimate achievement in life. Um, folks, we're not to be of the world. Also, another reason we suffer is because of Satan, right? Can Satan cause us trouble? Sure he can. Now, the problem is every time you have problems, it doesn't mean Satan's behind it. That's one of the real difficulties. There's, there's some preachers out there who say, well, if you're tempted, that's the devil doing it. It's really not you. It's the devil. The devil is causing you to sin. In fact, every temptation you have is because there's some demon or some devil's hiding behind a bush and he comes out and tempts you. And So if you actually sin, it's really not you sinning. It's that the devil is making you do it. It's the Bill Crosby, the devil made me do it mantra. Um, I remember when, um, who was it? Uh, Jimmy Swaggart fell into his moral, had his moral failing. I think it was either Oral Roberts or um, who's the other one? It's Oral Roberts and there's uh, I can't remember. Anyways, they they called him up and they cast the demon of lust out of him over the phone. 
all right, to try and solve his problem. Um, look, folks, the, you don't need the devil to sin. You do fine just on your own, okay? But does Satan hate believers? Sure he does. Sure he does. Um, here's another reason you suffer. Because of your flesh. What's your flesh? You're fallen, right? We all lug around a fallen human nature that we got to deal with every day. And when you read Romans 7, what did Paul say? Woe is me. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Who's going to deliver me from the body of this death? He didn't sound very happy there, right? Because the flesh brings suffering. Folks, suffering is a normal, natural part of the Christian life. It's natural. It's not something to be avoided at all costs. It's not something to be be seen as, as abnormal. See, that's the problem. When you start seeing something normal as abnormal, you get all fouled up in your thinking. Did Paul ever... You know, when Paul talked about suffering, did he ever say, um, Corinthians, I, I want you to pray for me because I'm having a rough time today. You know, I want you to pray that, you know, things will go well with me. You ever ask for that? What did Paul ask for in his prayers? Strength. To go through whatever it is that he's going through. The ability to preach the gospel clearly, to have an opportunity to preach. It was all about spiritual things. It had nothing to do with his own personal comfort. And see, as Christians, we've raised this comfort level to almost a God. It's a God of idolatry. We need to be comfortable. And if we are sick or we have some disease or people are poking fun of us at work or we're having a rough time in the world, um, that's abnormal. I'm a Christian. This is not supposed to be happening. Well, of course it is. As a Christian, of course it is. Now, what you want to make sure of is you don't suffer because of what? Your own sin, your own stupidity. I had a friend of mine who got fired from his job and he was praising Jesus for allowing him to, you know, leading him into another line of work. And I said, no, you got fired because you're an idiot. And I didn't tell him that, but, you know, that's what's going through my head, you know. Um, no, you got fired because you're an idiot. It had nothing to do with God. Don't blame God for this one, you know. Now, God may be able to turn it around, but, you know, if you're slovenly at work and you don't do a good job and you're careless and the boss fires you, don't go, don't go praising Jesus for, you know, leading you into a new line of work. You know, that's, your, and that's what Peter says. If you suffer as a Christian, don't do it because you're a thief or an evildoer or you're a troublesome meddler. Don't, don't suffer for Jesus because of that. If you don't do your job and you suffer... It's on you, man. There's no glory to God in that. And what Paul is saying here, quite honestly, to the Corinthians, is he's telling them, because I'm suffering, my, my suffering is allowing me to do what? To help you and yours. Because evidently, what were these false teachers, whoever they were, what were they telling the Corinthian believers? Well, they were probably telling them, you know what? The reason Paul has such a rough life is he's out of God's will. You know? He's just not where God wants him. And God is chastening him. In fact, we know that's what it said in Philippians, right? 
Philippians, Paul talks about being in prison. And he was basically saying, you know, there are people who say, well, see, Paul was out of the will of God. And therefore, God had to take him and put him on the shelf by having him thrown into Roman prison. God had to remove him. Um, look, folks, Paul is saying the things I suffer are so that I can comfort you with the same comfort that I'm comforted with. We can comfort one another. We live in a fallen world. One of the things we need to do as believers is comfort other believers, right? You know, and, and you know, think about it. What what trial did you go through that you came out the other side that will enable you to help other people going through the same problem? You know, there are women who've gone through the loss of of a of a child. Well, what are they able to do with other women who've lost a child? They're able to come alongside and say, you know, I know how you feel because I lost somebody. And they could help them or, or whatever the trial is. If you survive cancer, you survive whatever it is. And Paul's saying God is the God of all comfort. In the world you should have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Tribulation is an interesting word. I've um, I think with the word here, um, yeah, this is flipsis. That's an interesting word, flipsis. And it means to be squeezed. It was used of a wine press. What does a wine press do? It squeezes the grapes to get the juice out. Paul's saying, I'm being squeezed. Now, at this time, unfortunately, he did not have Prozac and Xanax and these other drugs that we have today, right? I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm against a lot of those. I mean, there, there's a valid reason for them to be used at times, and, and medically there's some valid reasons, but I think they're really overprescribed. You know, the number, isn't, isn't Valium the number one prescribed medication in America? Isn't Valium or? It's one of those. All right. Huh? It's probably just behind Viagra, I don't know. Um, but the whole point here is that Paul saw his sufferings as a normal part of his life. And he used the sufferings that he went through not as a whining platform, but rather as a platform to enable him to help others who are going through the same trials to comfort them. He said, verse 5, for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us. What, what does it mean to abound? They're all over the place. Look at Paul. Later on, he's going to talk about his sufferings. Got beaten. Thrown into prison. Misunderstood. Maligned. Got stoned once. Left for dead. Shipwrecked three times, at least we'd know. He had people constantly badgering him, constantly misrepresenting him, constantly accusing him of one thing and another. He lives his entire life. The guy suffered his entire life. And yet he never, never saw that as something abnormal. Rather, it was a normal part of his ministry. And he, instead of using the sufferings as a as a pity party or anything like that. He used them as an opportunity to minister to others who are going through the same trials to comfort them. If you suffer with Christ, you're going to do what? Reign with Him. 
If you suffer with him, you're going to reign with him. Now, let's explore another aspect of suffering. Another aspect of suffering. Suffering can be mental, many different things, can it? It can be physical suffering. It can be emotional. It can be mental. All kinds of different things. Um, if you really love someone and they are suffering, how do you feel? You suffer with them, don't you? How do you think God feels about this planet? He created a pretty beautiful world, didn't he? And what have we done to it? God created a world of great beauty. I mean, California is a great place. It's a beautiful place to visit. You just don't want to live there. But, you know, it's a beautiful place to visit. Gorgeous scenery. Gorgeous weather. And then there's the dark side. Hollywood Street. San Francisco. One of the prettiest cities in the Probably one of the prettiest areas in the world. I mean, just gorgeous out there. And what do you have? Yeah. And it's just, you know, morally, it's a cesspool. All right. How do you think God feels? You know, part of our sufferings, I guess, you know, what I'm trying to get at is part of our suffering should probably be feeling the sorrow of God over a lost and fallen world. Feeling like he does a little bit about it. Something he's created with such beauty being perverted and twisted and, and destroyed even by our own selfishness. Um, I think that's what Paul is talking about a little bit. I think Paul got to the point well, when Christ suffered, he suffered with it. There's a camaraderie of suffering. Um, I'm told I've never had the opportunity to serve in the armed forces. But I'm told that some of the greatest bonds are forged in the foxholes. You know, I, re I remember watching Flags of Our Fathers and just that movie, which is a very fascinating movie, and just seeing... In some ways, how close these guys were when they were being shelled by the Japanese and shot at. You know, that formed friendships that lasted them their entire lives. The suffering and the anguish they went through. We should do the same with Christ. Try to get to the point where we see the world a little bit through his eyes. Now, there's no way we're going to succeed at that, right? Because he's infinite, we're not. He's infinitely holy, we're cruddy. But do you think we can get to the point a little bit where we can share in his heart and his feelings towards the world? I think we can. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying we, Corinthians and Paul, we share in the sufferings, we share in the consolation. 
If something good happens to someone you love, how do you feel? Good. Why? You share in their joy. You rejoice with them. What brings the greatest joy to the heart of God? The angels rejoice in heaven over one sinner that repents. Therefore, if you want to make God happy, you want to bring joy to his heart, what do you need to be interested in as well? Sinners, the salvation of others. They are not the enemy. They are the mission field. We've made them our enemy. We've turned them into a political party or a political opponent. They're not. They're the mission field. They rejoice. There's great joy in heaven when a sinner repents. And we should feel joyful too. Why? Because that brings God joy. As a believer, we need to get to the point in our lives where we do those things that bring God's joy because we want to feel his joy with him. We love him and we want to make him happy, so we do those things that make him happy, that bring joy to his heart. We want to share with him. And that's what the Bible says when it says, weep with those that weep and rejoice with those that rejoice. Share that. And Paul is saying that you are sharing in my sufferings and in my consolation. And he's trying to bring the Corinthian believers back to a biblical understanding of tribulation and trials that it's not abnormal. It is a normal part of the Christian life. And don't let anybody come in there and tell you that if you're suffering, you're out of God's will. You've sinned. It's your fault. God doesn't like you. What did you do? Fess up. You may not have done anything. It's a normal part of the Christian life. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, verse 8, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength, so that we despaired even of life. What kind of trial was this? How bad was it? We even despaired of life. Asia is what? What area? Turkey Minor. That was the Asia of Paul's day, not China and Japan and all that. The Asia of Paul's day was Turkey there. And Paul's saying, you know what? Our trial, the trouble that came on to us was not, you know, a minor little inconvenience. Have any of us in here really suffered for Christ? We've been inconvenienced, haven't we? We've not suffered. Paul's saying, I suffered. In fact, we even despaired of our life. We even despaired of our life. We, we thought we were dead. We were burdened beyond measure. The idea there is to take an animal and just keep packing the stuff on it until the poor old animal just almost falls to its knees under the weight of what's on there. Paul says, the weight on us was so bad we could barely stand up. We could barely stay Stay up. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. That we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who 
raises the dead. Why does God let you go through suffering sometimes? So you don't trust in yourself, right? Why did God allow Peter to be tempted to deny the Lord three times? Why did he allow that? Why did he allow Satan to sift him? Why he was eventually restored? Pride. Arrogance. And that's something that we all struggle with, isn't it? I'm reading a book now by C.J. Mahaney called Pride. Humility. Actually called Humility. It's about pride. It's a book on humility. And um, humility is realizing that you can't make it on your own. And why does God allow us sometimes to go through trials? He lets us go through trials so that we realize we come face to face with the fact that we are finite, frail, and we can't make it on our own. And if he doesn't help us, we are done for. Um, one of the greatest problems that pastors face, if you're in a, if you're in a church and you have a successful ministry, it's easy to think it's your, it's your ability to speak. It's your magnetic personality. It's just your great, wonderful person. And that will kill your effectiveness in ministry because you think you don't need God. Sometimes God's got to just come around once in a while and just, you know, without me, you can do nothing. It's not that you can do a little bit. <laughs> you can do nothing. We are one. Stop and think about it. You are 100% dependent on God. The next breath you take, why do you take it? Because God allows it. The fact that you can sit here and think and you're not a slobbering imbecile in an insane asylum is why? Because God gave you a brain. Right? And the way and, and the very fact that you're here and, and able to to sit here and, and, and learn his word and, and be exposed to it is God gave you the health and the faculties and the sight and the hearing and the ability to think and Above that, he gave you eternal life. So what do you have to boast of? Nothing. In fact, Paul's going to come about that later on. He'll say, you know what? You're just a clay pot. You're a clay pot. What's a clay pot good for? Back in those days, what you use clay pots for? Well, even for a lot of things, but usually what they use for? Human waste, right? They didn't have... Water closets in those days, right? If you had to relieve yourself in the middle of the night, there was a chamber pot that you used. You're a clay pot. That's all you are. You're nothing more than a chamber pot, really. And what's in you? There, there's a treasure hid within you. Who's that? Christ. It's not you. It's Christ. And therefore, when everybody, whenever someone comes around and says, well, you know, you've just got to have a wonderful view of yourself, and you've you got to have self-esteem, and if you don't have self-esteem, you just never amount to anything, God. Listen, do you need self-esteem? 
No, you don't. What do you need? You need a proper view of yourself, which is what? You've got nothing to offer God. What do you have to offer God? What do you have to offer God? What do you have that God needs? Nothing. Nothing. In fact, the only thing you bring to God is a big mess, don't you? That he's got to clean up. Pride destroys. Arrogance destroys. And God goes to great, great efforts to destroy the pride, doesn't he? The proud. What about Nebuchadnezzar? Isn't this great Babylon I built? Look at this wonderful city. And God says, oh, yeah. And the next thing he remembers is waking up seven years later out of his eating grass for seven years. And saying, you know what? He wins. I, I lost that one. He wins. And, 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 and Nebuchadnezzar, and I really believe this. When we go to heaven, Nebuchadnezzar will be standing right there by Daniel. And why is that? Because God destroyed the pride. God destroyed his pride. You don't bring anything to God but a mess. You have nothing to commend yourself to God. And, and what, what biblical knowledge or what spirituality you've attained is not because you did it anyways. It's because of the Spirit of God who dwells in you, right? Pride is a destructive thing. We all struggle with it, don't we? We all do. Yeah, I can be confident that I'm his child, but what makes me valuable, me or his estimation of me? Yeah, see, that's 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 the difference. All right, that's the difference. I mean, if, and I, I use this. If I pull out a hundred dollar bill and set it here, and I pull out a hundred dollars in gold and set it here, which is more valuable? They're both the same value, right? <laughs> right? They're $100 here and $100 here. Which is more valuable? Well, they're both equally valuable. But which one has intrinsic value? Gold. In other words, of the value in the property itself, what makes the $100 bill valuable? Because the U.S. Treasury says it's worth 100 bucks, right? When you stand before God, what makes you valuable? Your intrinsic value? Is it, or is it because of the value that God places on you? It's the value that God places on you. That's not something to boast about. All right? Um, yeah, you can, you can be confident that God has chosen you as his child, but always realize you don't deserve it. It's not because you've earned it. That, by the way, is one of the one of the wonderful aspects to the understanding the whole doctrine of election. Why are you a Christian? Well, you know, God looked down the quarters of the time and he saw that I would respond to him. Mm. Well, God looked down the quarters of the time and he saw, boy, you know, I really like that guy. And I want I, I'm gonna choose him because I like him. He's a nice guy, or a nice gal or whatever. Mm. No. Why did God choose you? He wanted to. 
That's the answer. That's the answer. It's not because of any intrinsic value or worth on your parts because it's God who shows mercy. And that destroys your pride because there's a lot of people that say, well, you know, God got a real deal when I became a Christian. I mean, man, I got a lot to offer him. No. You have nothing to offer God. I mean, there's a, there's a line here. I mean, there are people who are constantly reminding themselves that they're sinners. And then again, there are people who are just as bubbly as can be because they know that they're saints saved by grace. Yes. And, and those are the ones that it seems to me that, that Christ and God uses, the people who aren't in, this, in, the, in the dumps all the time. Right. It's not that you're depressed. We're not talking about being depressed, clinically depressed all the time, going and saying, I'm a worm, I'm a worm, I'm a worm, I'm a worm. That's not what it is. I'm a sinner saved by grace. And I, I have what I have not because there's some intrinsic value and worth on my part, because of God who showed his mercy to me. I didn't deserve it. I realize that. And every day I think about it, I just understand that it's a little bit better. You know, that I really don't deserve his grace. And all I can do is say, thank you, God. And I love you and I want to please you. So how can I please you? How can I make you happy? How can I work off your page today? How can I be on your page? And when you start thinking about that, these you don't, you don't think as much about, well, is that wrong or right? What do you think? Does that make God happy? If I do that, will God be pleased? I don't need a Bible verse saying this is sin and that is sin as much as I need. Will this make God happy? Will this please him? Will this glorify him? And I realize that I don't deserve any good thing. And the more I understand that, the better God looks. The more grace, the more um, glory he gets. And again, it's not a clinical depression that I have. I'm, I'm not depressed. But I hope that I'm getting some marginal understanding in my mind, as feeble as it is, of how great God is and how ungreat I am. Because apart from God, I can do nothing. And the second you try to minister in your own strength, what happens? You're done for. You're done for. And Paul is saying here, you know what? I'm glad that I was weak. Why? Because when I am weak, who gets the credit for when something goes right? God does. Not me. God does. Not me. Who do you want to get the credit? God. Um, you know, great, a great, I'll tell you, one, one of the great stories on this is Gideon, right? Got Midian. Pressing the Israelites. So Gideon says, God says, okay, we're, we're going to, Gideon, I want you to get an army together and we're going we're gonna to take care of the Midianite problem, all right? So what does Gideon do? He gets, well, how many guys? Remember? More than that. It's a hundred and something. It's ten, I forget the exact, it's several hundred, it's about a hundred thousand, I think, or something. Somewhere around, it's quite a bit. I don't remember the exact number, but it was probably, you're probably right around 30, 33,000 men. That's a good army. Okay, let's go beat the Midianites. Now, if they would have done that, what would have happened? And, and they would have won. What would be the mentality of every Israelite and that army? Yeah. Woof, woof, we did it, you know. All right. So God says, yeah, I got too many. So 
Anybody that's chicken, go home. So you got how many? 20. It went down a little bit, right? All right. And then what he did, he had him go and he had him say, okay, take a drink of water. He knows who they got. Anyways, the whole bottom line is he wound up with 300 guys. And these 300 guys are going to wipe out the Midianite army, which is a lot bigger than they are. And God taught him how to do it, you know, with hiding the torch inside a pitcher. And then you break the pitcher, the light goes on, it shocks the Midianites. You yell real loud, they get up and kill each other. Now that's not the that that's not what they teach you at West Point, is it? <laughs> on how to win wars and fight battles. But when it's all said and done, what did every one of those three hundred guys know? It wasn't me. And that's the way God wants it. God wants us to understand it's not us. Because when we have pride, who are we competing against? God. I don't need you, God. I can handle this my own. Sometimes God allows you to do that just so you fall flat on your face and wipe out. So you realize just how much you need him. But in that also, like, God don't want us to be walking around looking all mopey, does he? I mean, you know, he don't want us. No. He wants us to put our, our best forward. So when people see. And us, why do we do our best? Do we do our best to call attention to ourselves or do we do our best because we want to honor God? Because we represent him. I do mine because we represent him. It's the motivation. That, That's what we're trying to get at. Why are you doing it? They always want to know why I'm so happy. Yeah. What is your motivation? Why are you doing this? Are you? Yeah. And, and that's, that's what Paul's trying to get at here. It's, it's not as much, we don't want to call attention to ourselves. We want to call attention to our great Savior. And Paul is saying, when I was going through this trial in Asia, people could tell that it wasn't because I was strong and I was wise and I was just able to you know, punch my way through the wall. It's because they saw my weakness, and in my weakness, they really saw God at work in me. Remember, that that's what it says earlier on when Paul says, God has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the mighty. All right? That's how God works. Because when we think we've done it, God does not get the credit. We get the credit. And the point is we need to give God the credit for it. And that's what Paul's getting at. And he's going to really get to this in chapter 4 where he's really talking about this whole concept here of we have this treasure in clay pots, earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may not be of us, but of God. God gets the glory. He gets the credit. And again, it's not that I go around depressed and mopey and all of that kind of stuff. It's just that I have a proper understanding of where my power comes from. It's not from me. It's not my abilities. It's not my strength. It's not my wisdom. It's God. Why do you know the Bible? Do you know the Bible because you're smarter than the average person? I don't think so. Because the Holy Spirit gives you understanding. That's why. And he says here, God who delivered us from so great a death does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. We trust God to deliver us from our trials. Now, does that mean that I don't go through them? No. No. But if I'm going through them, who is there with me to take me through them? 
God is. But you have to know that, don't you? Yeah. You have to know it for yourself. You know, a lot of times it's amazing. You know, I was talking to my friend when we were at the conference, and I said, you know, a lot of times we're practical atheists. You know, we we, we believe in God. Somebody said, you believe God? Sure, he believes in God. Yeah, absolutely, you know, all-powerful, knows everything. And then we face a trial, and immediately we ask, did God forget about me, or where's he at, or why is this happening? And we act like God's not there, you know, like somehow he lost it, you know, and, and we act as though God is not there. God knows what we're going through. Or is, that, or is, is it that, um, like you said, over the years and the way you're brought up and mm -hmm. so forth, that we don't want nobody to see us going through something or or that way, like white, you know, they think that you are a Christian and you're going through and they see you going through. And if you're not handling very well, we don't want them to deter that, that we don't completely believe in God. You know what I'm saying? Like... Um, like if you're really sick, and and then you're you're not, it seems like you're not putting your faith forward. People see that, and then they're thinking that you don't really believe in God. I mean, that there is that wishy-washy. Mm -hmm. Well, sometimes we struggle with that. But we struggle through it. Is is that um, that we don't want to mislead anybody when we're going through? Need to be real, right? Right. Did was did did Job question why he was going through his trials? Sure, he did. Did God give him an answer? Well, yeah, later on he did, but he questioned it. God, God wants to destroy your pride. Okay, I'll tell you this story just so you get all chuckle out of this. Gary and I went. Name's Gary. We we went to. The Shepherds Conference had a great time. Well, I pride myself, unfortunately. I pride myself. I know I'm not supposed to say that. But I pride myself. Why do they call me during class all the time? All right. I pride myself on knowing where I'm going. I, I don't get lost too easily. You know, I, under, I know directions. I'm pretty good at directions. So what happens? We land there Tuesday night. I get in the car. I head out. And I go the wrong way on Sepulveda. I'm heading down towards San Diego instead of north towards Hollywood. And I would have probably stayed on there and wound up in San Diego before I turned around and realized, you know what? I'm going the wrong way. Don't ask me how I got twisted around, but I did. So that was one, that was one bad thing. So Gary says, nope, let me drive because I'm a better driver. He, he likes to drive. So he drives. Crazy driver. All right. He's he's a type A driver, you know. Anyways, we do we get to our destination. So the next night, you know, we we have a great time at MacArthur's at the Shepherds Conference. John preached, he had a, some good things. And we went out to supper, went down to Burbank and got back on I five and uh, missed our exit. And I wound up up in Newhall, which is quite a ways, about ten miles north. And of course, you know, my pride is shattered again because I missed the exit that I knew I should have taken and I missed it, you know. And somehow I'm 10 miles out of position where I should have been. So Gary says, ah, that's no problem. So he, he zips off the interstate, turns around, we go back the way. About a mile down the road, all of a sudden these lights are going and police pull us over. And uh, evidently when he came off the road, this is the middle of nowhere. There's nothing around, you know. There's not a living soul in sight. But he made a left turn on a right turn only off the exit somehow. We didn't see the sign. 
So he gets a ticket for taking a left turn. And, you know, he's, he's proud about, you know, his ability to drive and get around. And, you know, you know, he's going in and out and zooming around and, you know, just doing. And then, so we're both, uh, I got lost. He got a ticket. We go back to MacArthur's church and C.J. Mahaney gets up and says, I'm going to preach tonight on humility. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, we, I think we could skip this one. We've learned about our humility here. God destroys the, hum, the, the, the proud. Because when we're proud, we take God's place. We don't need him. And we laugh at that, but we say, you know what? When we're weak, God is strong. When we, when we come to the end of ourselves and God takes over, people look at it and say, well, that's not him. Look what God has done in him. God will destroy your pride. And Paul is saying here, God was great in my weakness. He was great in my weakness. And he said, you also help me in your prayers for me. What kind of prayer? God deliver Paul. Keep him from trouble. Don't let him get hurt. Don't let him feel bad. No, what is it? God, help him through the trial. Help him be an example as he goes through this trial. The average Christian prayer meeting, what do, you, what do you pray about? Sick people. Sick people. Somebody's got uh, gout. Somebody's got a bad back. Somebody's got a broken leg. Somebody's got whatever. Um, and if it's not that, it's, uh, you know, so-and-so needs a job. So-and-so, you know, needs, needs this, needs that, need, 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 you know. And, and it's an anomalous thing when somebody stands up and says, you know, um, I want you all to pray that uh, my wife or my husband will come to know the Lord. They don't know him. Sort of look at him like, you know, what's that? What kind of prayer request did Paul have? I, I really think if Paul showed up at the average Baptist prayer meeting, he'd throw up. He gets sick to his stomach, the things that we pray for. The trivialities of life, right? And don't we do that? We don't pray for the important big picture items. We're praying for little itty bitty things. You realize that someday everybody is going to get sick and die. What don't the Morris Cirillos and the Oral Roberts of the world not understand here? Right? If God wanted you completely healthy, nobody would ever die. That's not what God wants. God wants us to be an example in whatever situation we're in. And that's what Paul's getting at here. I'm going through trials and I'm having it rough and, and, and that, but, but God is magnified in my weakness. Because when they look at me, they say, well, it's certainly not Paul pulling that off. It has to be a power outside of him. And Paul says, that's the way I want it. Because when I am weak, he's strong. Because I can't make it my, on my own. Peter says, they'll all go, Lord. I will be there. I'll follow you. And Jesus said, I know better than that. I know better than that. You can't follow me. Because it's not within you to follow me. Because we will fail. That's what human nature is about. We are weak. 
God is strong. Let's let God be seen in us. For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Who does Paul bring in as a witness to what he is just saying? His conscience. What is your conscience? What is the conscience? It's that little angel on my shoulder. Yes, yeah, so you got you got a white one and a red one, right? What is the human conscience? Your sense of right and wrong. How is that? How is that programmed? How's your sense of right and wrong programmed? Through your values, through your worldview, through your upbringing, right? You know, we look over there and we see some nut job that takes a, you know, forty pounds of dynamite, straps it to his body, walks into a crowd, and blowing himself up as a as a as a nut job, right? What does he think himself as? A hero, a martyr. To him, that's the greatest thing he could do. The greatest honor would be to die killing a bunch of infidels. Yeah. That's what he's told. All right. But the whole point there is that he doesn't think of that as wrong. He thinks of it as right. He's got a misinformed conscience. We all have a conscience. The conscience will get us when nothing else does, right? You can fool a lot of people, can't you? Can you fool your conscience? It knows you. It knows you better than you know yourself, right? Is there a part of man that's born with a conscience from God that knows? I think what God, what God says there... The conscience is a. Because they talk about a properly trained conscience. Yeah, the, the conscience is, is not. Okay, I put it. What the consciousness of the human is, it is it is a. Is that part of us that tells us when something violates our sense of values, whatever those values are. Okay, what those values are are a result of our upbringing our society, what we've grown up in, all of that stuff. That's what forms those values. And what the consciousness does, it tells us whenever we deviate from whatever our values are. All right? So as a believer, where should we get the programming for our values? The Word of God, the Holy Spirit will give us the programming for our values. But if we don't follow the Word of God, what can happen to our value system? You don't lose it. You don't lose it. What does it become? It becomes corrupted. It becomes altered. What we, what we feel is right is not really right. Okay? That's why, that you know, and that's why one of the dangers, you know, there's some lady called a Christian psychologist. I get the heebie-jeebies when I say that. But she asked him, she says, you know, I'm doing this thing, and I feel bad about that. What should I do? And the psychologist says, well, just keep doing it till it doesn't hurt anymore. All right? That's how you kill your conscience. You keep doing it until it no longer bothers you. You sear your conscience. Why is it that, you know, you look at these serial killers that can walk in and just kill somebody and not think twice of it, you know, 
what makes them be able to do that? You know, I think of that and I say, how in the world could they ever do that? Their conscience is destroyed. It's seared. But do you think they were born up that way? No. Whatever, whatever background they had, whatever went into the program of their conscience is what they live by. Their value system. All right. And if you don't have a biblical value system, where are you going to get your value system? From the world. What part of the world are you growing up in? And and that's that that's that's when you, when you look at it that you know that's why our world is in such a mess because people's consciences are not informed by the word of God, rather formed by whatever the society, whatever their background, whatever it is they came from. And that's why you can see these people commit the most heinous crimes and they think nothing of it because to them it's normal. It's, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. And Paul is saying here, I'm, I'm very, I'm, the things I'm telling you, I'm telling you with a pure conscience. I'm not leading you on. I'm not shining you on. I'm not being duplicitous. I'm telling you because my conscience bears witness with me that what I'm telling you is correct. And although Paul may be able to fool people, he can't fool his conscience. You may be able to fool people and do what violates your conscience and, and act as though there's no problem, but you know in your heart that you're not right. There's something you're not doing right, whatever that is. And the message of the New Testament is this. Remember we talked about this in 1 Corinthians. Never violate what? Your conscience. If you feel something is wrong, don't do it. Don't violate your conscience. Because if you start violating your conscience, you can really get yourself into trouble. Rather, what should you do? Program your conscience from the Word of God. And Paul's saying, my conscience bears witness with me. Then I'm, I'm telling you this in sincerity and godly godliness. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.